What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hey guys, happy Wednesday. It's Rachel Silver Cohen, so you know what that means. It's another episode of Unpolished Therapy, where we have ditched the couch, we've grabbed the mics, we are breaking down all the unpolished wreckage on the corner of audacity and advice. Good morning, Dr. Boca. How are you? Good morning, Rach. I'm doing great. I love our Wednesdays, so what do you have for me today? I love our Wednesdays too. And I have a whole big entree today. It's not an appetizer. It's not a cocktail. It's the whole meal. It's the whole kit and caboodle. I'm glad I came hungry here. I know. know. You know how I love my food. This is actually going to be food for thought though. And I think that you'll be excited. And I think our listeners will be too. So I have an old friend and it's, you know, you know, the degrees of separation. I mean, clearly like the unpolished degrees of unpolished separation. And it's an old friend that I've had for I don't even know how long, a lot of decades we're aging ourselves here, but she's like a baller now. And she has recently published a book. I read the book and I just thought it would be a great opportunity to have her on the podcast to share her story. It's an interesting one to say the least, unpolished specifically, no pun intended. And I think that it it warrants sharing with our audience and so on and so forth. So Dr. Boga, I want to introduce you and our listeners to Dr. Elisa Hallerman, PhD, JD. She is the CEO of the first ever recovery management agency. After graduating from New York Law School and passing the New York Bar, Elisa relocated to the West Coast. She took a shot at the entertainment business. Over the next decade, she went from the talent agency mailroom to becoming partner and head of the talent department at United Talent Agency. Later, she became a partner at William Morris Endeavor. She was sober from drugs and alcohol for years. Elisa's interest in the recovery field drew her to take classes in drug and alcohol counseling at the University of California, Los Angeles in 2010. She soon realized her future career and purpose were in this field, and she began making preparations to leave the entertainment industry. In 2011, Elisa created RMA, Recovery Management Agency. In addition to her JD, Elisa holds a doctorate in depth psychology and somatic studies from Pacifica Graduate Institute with a focus on neuroscience and trauma. She has studied soul psychology with renowned spiritual writer and psychotherapist Thomas Moore, PhD, and is currently becoming certified as a somatic experiencing practitioner as developed by Peter Levitt. Elisa is a member of the Institute for Functional Medicine. She was a visiting professor at Chapman University for Film and Media Arts. She is the author of Soulbriety, which is what I cannot wait to dive into. And without further ado, Dr. Elisa Hallerman, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Unpolished Therapy. Thank you so much for having me. Ladies, I'm so excited for this. That was some bio. That's all I can say. Rach, I didn't realize as you started all of this that this was in reference to the book that you had me read many months ago, which I did read, Soul Briety, and it was amazing. But to hear that bio, 
is just such a remarkable statement as to the the breadth and the depth now of your expertise. So I am so excited. And Rachel, thank you for bringing Elisa onto the podcast. I can't wait to dive in. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I'm thrilled too. And obviously, if we can just back up for a second, somehow, I don't know on our podcast why I'm always surrounded by doctors. Everyone's got a zillion letters. And it seems like the more and more guests we have on, the more and more well-versed our guests become. So I don't know. I'm feeling very small. I'm going to have to get myself some degrees after today's (laughs) podcast. But Lise, one of the things that I kind of just want to touch base on that I kind of chuckled with in the book, and obviously there wasn't a lot of laughing happening in the book, and and I'm so grateful that you were courageous and brave enough to share your story with sobriety, but even just something as simple as your name, which I guess isn't that simple. A name is how we're defined and who we are. And I got a kick out of it. Along the lines of the book, there was a part where you were talking about the fact that your name is Elisa, but growing up, everyone called you Lisa. And then as you evolved with your own growth and your own personal mindset, you realize, wait, hold on, my name is Elisa, and that's what I want to be called. And the reason I got a kick out of it is that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, people call me Rachel Silver. Thursday and Saturdays and every other Sunday, people call me Rachel Silver Cohen. Some people don't even know I my first name is Rachel. And I get a little messed up throughout the stages of my life. And I just wanted to point that out, that I commend you for sticking to what you felt comfortable with for something that other people, they, they probably would never really have that type of issue, if you will. I mean, I get joked about it all the time, like as if I changed my name to like Rainbow or something. <laughs> right. It's like the craziest thing ever. But growing up, my name was Elisa. That's my name, E-L-I-S-A. And a lot of people would pronounce it wrong. Alyssa, Elise, whatever sure. it was. And finally, when I got to college, I was just really frustrated with the wrong name. I also was always called Hallie in college because that was my license plate, H-A-L-Y. And so along the way, it just became Lisa. And then it was Lee and Lise and all of that. And that's what I think you call me. And I've been calling you Silver. I didn't even know your name was Rachel for a very long time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it is what it is. But when I got sober, I really felt like I wanted to separate myself from that. And I wanted to go back to Elisa. And I went to my bosses at UTA at the time. So this is back in 2002 and said, I want to change my name to Elisa now. And can we like fix it on my email and so on? And they said, no, it will be very confusing. The whole town knows you as Lisa Hallerman. And no, that's ridiculous. I have my own feelings about that. But needless to say, I thought to myself, okay, if I ever leave the business, I will definitely change my name. Pretty much the first thing I did was change it back to Elisa the minute I walked out the door. That's amazing. But I'm not requiring anyone that knows me from that life or from many lives to change it also. So Silver, you're free to call me Lisa and Lori, you have to call me Elisa. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. For the purposes of this podcast. (laughs) That is totally great. And I love it. And I just wonder how it must feel for you to have written a book and gotten your doctorates all under your Elisa name. How does it feel to have that identity back 
I just feel more myself as Alisa. That's just the most comfortable thing for me to answer to. But of course, I don't even hear it anymore when people say Lisa or Lise. Everyone in grad school called me Ellie, which I've no idea how that kind of stuff. It doesn't even matter. I just introduced myself as Elisa. When I was reading the book, I couldn't help but to think of you as like the Ray Donovan of recovery. And to the listeners out there, what Lisa has crafted and created is really like a one-stop shop for clients who are suffering and they need help with their recovery. My guess, and Lisa, fill in the blanks here, is that if Lisa gets this call, you know, someone's in crisis and Dr. Halloran, with her staff and her team, they come in and they are just Johnny on the spot with an yeah. army of, I was picturing like like a spoke of a wheel and you have all these different arms of, you know, this person is handling taking the client and getting them to rehab. And this one is handling cleaning up their apartment. And wh- why don't you go into some of the details so we have a, a broad scope of exactly what it is that you do from a business perspective now? So RMA works with individuals and families or whoever that family system is and companies. And really people walk in through the door of either substance abuse, behavioral addiction, mental health, albeit anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, bipolar, et cetera, or trauma. And usually there's a crossover, but one of the other is what they feel comfortable walking in with and saying, hey, here's what's going on right now. And we don't even really know what it is. And now what do we do? Now, sometimes they're in a crisis and we're very good at crisis management and diving in. And that is some of the stories that are in the book where it's an immediate, we have to either get someone to a safe place, get them into a hospital setting or detox setting. And there's a lot of moving parts, whether that's legal or security or so on and so forth. So that's one aspect of it. But once the individual and the family is settled and in a safe place, what we do then are these full assessments that are really soul assessments and coming from an integrative and functional medicine perspective. So while I'm interested in hearing what's going on now, I am also looking underneath the symptoms to see what lies underneath. And that requires me to go back to the beginning, really understand this person's story from their perspective, from the other people around them, from the clinicians they've been working with, doctors and so on, to really see not only where there have been ruptures, but also where there has been strengths and where this person is succeeding or shining. And even though their light might be dimmed right now, where those areas were, because I'd like to pick up on those and also find my way in through those doorways. I think you're hitting it so perfectly. It's all encompassing and you can't do this type of treatment or any treatment without looking at the individual in totality from top to bottom, bottom to top. And I think it's amazing and you talk about it. And so for our listeners, you just heard Elisa bring up soul and the name of the book is Soul Briety. So can you talk a little bit more about the concept of soul, how you utilize soul, how you understand soul and how you get people to grow 
narrow down, as you say, I believe that's how you say it in the book and describe that component of soul. So I got sober, like I said, in 2002, 20 years ago, and I was part of a 12-step program and had a therapist. And that was the way that I went from abstinence abstinence to sobriety. And that really gave me a design for living and learning a lot of things that I didn't learn growing up of how to be and how to show up and how to really show up with integrity as a sober woman. But then five years into my sobriety at the height of my career with a lot of quote unquote success. And I say that because over my the life, I really had to redefine what success meant to me. And at the yeah. time, it meant getting there or having the next shiny new toy or having the title, having the office, having the car, whatever it was. And all of these things sort of outside of myself, which have really short expiration dates, mm. meaning the high or the dopamine hit or you know, whatever it is that you're getting in that moment is not long lasting, certainly. And I found myself feeling this hole still. And what I didn't know was I had a lot more inner work to do and a lot of healing to do that was related to my trauma, which I didn't even know I had until I heard this word and learned more. So when I decided to leave and go back to graduate school, I studied depth psychology and that's D-E-P-T-H. And depth psychology is oriented around the unconscious. It's a very non-pathologizing, but strength-affirming type of psychology. Healing is really about making what is unknown, known. So that does not rule us unconsciously, but we're actively participating in what's happening underneath. So soul work is a very big part of depth psychology. And when I wrote my dissertation, my dissertation question was, could doing soul-centered work help with long-term recovery from addiction? And across all my participants, which had various degrees of years of sobriety, whether many relapses or no relapses, and the answer was yes, it could. But the caveat was my participants didn't know they were actively doing soul work. Because they didn't have the language for it. And I felt like that was something that was really missing, not just for myself, but then for others. So that's where the concept of soulbriety came in, because I really wanted to go to another level of what lies underneath and really distinguish between spiritual work that I was doing, and then my soul level grow down work, which are cousins. And most people think of them as interchangeable. But if you really go back in history, and you read all the literature and theology and philosophy, you really come to understand the difference and the complement to one another if you can practice both. Lisa, if I may, I want to read um, on page nine. We learned very soon into the book that you're now five years sober, which in and of itself, most laymen would think, wow, five years of sobriety, check that off the list. I'm a success now. I don't have a problem. And you write 
I only have two choices. Either I find out what's supposed to fill that void, getting curious as to why it's here and what it's trying to tell me, or I stay in an addict mindset for the rest of my life, chasing the carrot of external validation and outer success to avoid looking at what's really driving me underneath. I know what I have to do, but how on earth do I do it? And the reason that that kind of struck me is that I don't know how many people would have those years of sobriety under their belt and then still be willing to say, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. something is still missing. And I just want to give you credit for recognizing, while you're not sure how you're going to figure this out, you know that you're not in a place of fulfillment that five years sober is enough to hang your hat and say, here I am and and I'm good enough, which leads me back to so many questions that I had in the book about what you yourself found through your own personal soul work. And I have to just say the name sobriety is everything. I'm I'm obsessed with sobriety. And I don't know how the people like the regular sober people didn't want to tap into that. But it leads me to the question of in regular recovery, AA or of the like, if those individuals aren't growing down and going deeper and tapping into this philosophy that you now are an expert on, is that why so many people potentially relapse? I believe that a lot of people in a 12-step program and otherwise, people that are just on a spiritual journey or healing from something else, whether that's grief or heartbreak or loss or trauma, they are growing down. They are doing that work. I just don't think that they know they are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, soul will speak to you in whispers or it will wait until brick house falls on your head and you're forced to sit still. But you will hear the messages or you will feel the physical pain in your body and have to sort of look at that, right? Mm -hmm. We're taught that, you know, a lot of dis-ease or discomfort and all of those things that are body related from the neck down are caused by things that are unhealed, right? We know the connection now between our heart and our gut and our head and our gut. And so all of this is becoming information. So I think a lot of people are practicing it, don't know it, and therefore can't do it whenever they want. So not intentional. It's not intentional. And all of a sudden, you're forced into a dark night of the soul because something happens and you're very ill-prepared for that darkness. And it can be a very scary, uncomfortable place. And when it lasts more than a day or a week or a year, we search for something that's going to give us a quicker fix. And I think that's normal. But all I did was take the language that I had learned and became really deliberate about the practice of growing down and really named the methodology sobriety, which has now become my lifestyle. You talk a lot about dark nights. And as that also relates to your definition of normal, quote unquote, not being afraid of the dark. I know most of us who potentially are are not in any type of 12-step program or aren't in recovery, 
we hear phrases like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or you have to tread through the mud to get to the meadow. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how you feel your normal is, I guess, potentially becoming friends with the darkness? Yes. So your life is not going to be all rainbows and butterflies. There are going to be hardships that happen. And I think that having this worldwide epidemic when Corona hit and really forced everybody, everybody to stand still. Mm -hmm. And they were really forced to look at their life. They had the quiet that I talk about when my client fired me and I finally had this space and this quiet time to self-evaluate. So I think that happened for a lot of people. And then you panic because you have to make some decisions and you're not sure which way to go. But grief and loss, and like I said, a heartbreak, illness, all of these things are going to happen to yourself and to people that you love. And instead of being utterly forced there to be able to intentionally know what that space is going to look like and be comfortable in it. You know, a big piece of doing soul work is that soul work brings meaning and purpose to our life. And I feel like that's what I was lacking. I just put all my attention into work and I was workaholic about it and really wanted more and more and more and was very attached to quote unquote, Lisa Hallerman, the talent agent and the ego of it all and lost my way to my own meaning and purpose. And soul work allowed me to capture that again. So it's not to say that we should look forward to the darkness or that we should appreciate it or that we don't want to get through it and move forward, but we want to be meaningful about it. It's not that things happen for a reason. It's making reason out of the things that happen. Mm. Can you say that again? I love that. You repeat that? Yeah. So there are some things that happen to us that have no meaning whatsoever. We can't make meaning of them. They're they're horrific. They're just tragic. We were discussing Mm -hmm. that before we got on the call. There is no meaning to be made from certain things. Mm -hmm. However, it's not that that we're looking to make meaning out of. It's how we're coping with it, what we take away, and how we grow down from that experience that creates meaning in our life. And therefore, we can share with others. And that's the ultimate form of connection. It's first being able to alchemize your own pain into purpose, but there, from there, sharing your wisdom with others who are going through the same thing. So in essence, I always have this image of some of us are walking around with flashlights and some of us are in the cave. And mm-hmm. those of us that have flashlights at the moment are there to shine it on those that are sitting in the cave and then vice versa. And that's how we exist. And that's humanity and that's connection and that's vulnerability. I think that's so beautiful how you put it in a language that I think all of our listeners could really resonate with. Because when you say soul, 
right? Everybody kind of goes in all different ways. And like the first thing you hear from people is how you were saying the cousins, right? A lot of people don't know the grow down part of soul. And so they go with, oh, this is going to be like woo woo, or this is going to be like out there. But when you can really come up with the language behind it and ground in that language, it makes that whole concept of the counterintuitiveness that I experience with my patients when they say, wait a minute, I don't want to feel the feelings because I'm then I'm going to be out of control. And this is like, let's go through that process and sit with it as uncomfortable as it is when we move through that and it speaks to us and we understand it and we make meaning out of, and like we like to say on here, make meaning out of the mess. It allows us to then, you know, once we have that meaning and align it with who we are and, and how it fits in us, then we can connect with other people and and shine that flashlight on them. So it is absolutely beautiful. And I hope our listeners understand that and can read more about it in the book because it is such an important part of growth. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, it's important to define soul for yourself. And that's why I wrote the book in story because. Soul is talked about in image, in poetry, in metaphor, in mythology. It's not something that you can point to or give a concrete definition of. And it's not something outside of yourself. It's not something greater than yourself. It's not something upward and outward. Mm -hmm. It is something inside of you that is personal to you. And based on your own personal experiences, as well as the collective archetypes throughout history. And so essentially, you have to be able to find your own, if you will, definition. And that's why I asked people to tell their story. And that's Mm -hmm. why the book is told in story form, because that was the only way to get across the information in a way that people could see themselves in others and Mm -hmm. see their blind spots in others. So I think that really being able to define it for yourself with the help of the book to get you going and to start thinking in this way is what I wanted the book to be, a tool to help you to grow down and start to learn some of the language. So speaking of stories and the book, I want you to know that one of my favorite parts of the book is when you were so forthcoming and honest about your different personas and the parts Mm -hmm. of us. And when you used references with the stories throughout your clients and you talked about the night at the museum reference, will you go into that a little bit? And and if you would indulge us, would you share with Dr. Boga and our listeners who Trixie, Shorty Pants, Gwen, and Flossie are? Because I love all of them them. and I want to talk about it if if you'll indulge us. So when I got sober, I was told that, yes, I was in recovery, but that I would always sort of have this addict mindset or this addict mind. And that was why it was important to have a practice of spirituality and program and so on and so forth. And that sort of like rubbed me the wrong way initially because I was like, no, like I just did this and now I want to be this person. And, you know, there's an expression of like, we don't regret the past or wish to close the door on it. And that's true. But I really needed to distinguish between what was my disease thinking 
and what was Elisa, so to speak, my mm-hmm. soul self. And so very quickly, I gave her the name Trixie, unbeknownst to me about doing any parts work or any personification. And then many, many years later in grad school, I studied a lot of James Hillman and archetypal mm-hmm. psychology mm-hmm. and really started to learn this concept of personification, which is there are a lot of therapies that talk about parts work, whether it's our inner child or our inner critic or going even further as Richard Schwartz talks about in internal family systems and giving those names and giving them different parts. The idea behind personification is to take that name and really make it into a more three-dimensional, autonomous persona. And Trixie, I then started really working on her and giving her much more of, okay, yeah, these are Trixie's personality points. This is how she thinks. These are things she loves. This is what she hates. And really understanding her and letting her evolve and mature but knowing who she was and therefore allowing me to be in dialogue with her Mm -hmm. in a much more easy, comfortable way where I could learn from her. I want to jump in because I just want to say that like that part of the book more than anything is something that I kept going back to try to learn who all your parts were because for me, I'm like, I probably have eight thousand parts but the one I'm like I'm silver I'm Rachel I'm Rachel Silver Cohen but then like my crazy is like well I'm Sally Fields from Sybil and that's my part (laughs) and I think even from a generational standpoint that's all we point to as like wait there's different personality points Mm -hmm. and because we're not we meaning me you know educated in psychology and any kind of diagnosis that's all I I ever knew relative to having different mindsets. So Lise, you really set the record straight for me relative to how okay it is to identify different parts of our personalities, learn who we are. And I think too, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the takeaway for me is that even if some of these parts of you were while you were under the influence per se, It's not bad. It's just a part of you. Do I have that right? Exactly. And it's not that, you know, I want to really differentiate that between people that have an actual disorder. We're not pretending or believing that we're other people. We don't fall into where we all of a sudden are that personality. But we can identify these other personas within psyche and know that they exist and then give them more of a life so that we can dialogue with them. When I get really overwhelmed, and I talk about this in the book, I sit down and I go into a little meditation and I imagine me driving this beat up, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of old Grateful Dead Volkswagen van with all my parts in it. Mm -hmm. And I pull over and we all get out and we sit around and we have a meeting and they get to go around and share. And I really tune in 
to what each one is saying. And inevitably, I will learn something that I wasn't able to see in the noise. Mm-hmm. And then no one else gets to drive the car, control the radio. Everyone else has to sit in the back and then settle down. And I can take the driver's seat, but at least I have a lot more information about all these other things that were swirling inside of my head, maybe making me feel a little civil, if you will, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I've distinguished what's what. Yeah, I think that, it, that the description of what you see and how it's in this van, and we all have an image now of, you know, Trixie jumping in, in short pants or however we describe it, right? And our natural inclination when we get into that space is to start to be critical and start to be shaming and start to be blaming and whatever the case may be. And we we can't find that understanding and that connection to those parts in that place. And so it's so beautiful that we come out and we like, I almost see us in our little kumbaya circle. We're having these conversations, but and like, like siblings do, like in front of their parents, like, no, you said this. No, you did this. Right. Yeah. And we, we like calm everybody down and we say, okay, what's the message you want to tell me? And we're coming at it from just this openness and not this, oh, I'm civil with like 24 personalities. And it's all to communicate to us a need or a purpose or a reason or an understanding of what is happening in that moment and where we are either void or doing too much or not doing enough or not loving enough, giving, caring, whatever it is. And so it's such a beautiful way that you describe it. And I think it's a relatively, like Rachel said, like an unknown concept. We go to this place like, oh my God, I have multiple personalities or dissociative identity disorder. And it's not that at all. And it just really brings you so much clarity. So thank you for the way that you described it. Because I, I think it it definitely helps me. And I'm sure it helps our listeners to kind of make sense out of that. Yeah, it really helped me. I only had Trixie and then developed, was really able to sink into the others. And Also, developing short pants, which is sort of my insecurity, essentially, and a belief that I can't do it on my own or that I need somebody else's help or whatever that is, that narrative that went on for a long time that then someone actually said, you're still in short pants. And that was a post-it note that goes on my soul that says, oh, yeah you don't know yet. And not realizing that other person was a narcissist and needed to put that post-it note on my soul. But that being said, I was then able to go back and really look at short pants and how he developed and from where, and, you know, really be able to notice when short pants was creeping up Mm -hmm. and say, no short pants, like we got this, like, let's go. Like we got the power. We have the light, like, let's go. That's an old story. And I'm willing to take that post-it off my soul and stick it on the wall or throw it in the trash and move on. I want to mention about the post-it notes too, because that was something that I posted, (laughs) if you will, you know, as an earmark when I was reading the book. Um, For the listeners out there, the post-it notes was this great analogy or reference about when trauma happens to you. 
I guess everyone experiences different scenarios that potentially are trauma. Lisa, you talked in the book, even something as an example of, of getting your period when you were a little girl and your mom had slapped you and not knowing that maybe that was like a traditional type of thing that mothers and daughters go through, but having not had that happen to you before, how would you have known? And well, I guess you... Is it a traditional thing or was that bananas? No, it, it, it is a traditional thing. It is. Maybe you didn't get the memo. We did yeah. a podcast once about like, the did, did they not get the memo? If truth be told, I don't think my mother ever slapped me when I got my period. But I will tell you, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this is one of my post-it notes. As I got older and more and more of my friends would share the story about getting their period for the first time and their mother slapping them, I remember, hand to God, thinking to myself, why didn't I get slapped? That's what I meant. My mom didn't get the memo. Right. You You felt bad. You got left out. Yeah, I guess so. But you do talk in the book about these subtle stress pile-ups that over time, you're feeling as though the world is unsafe or that no one's coming to help you and that you were pushing down the pain and the shock. And post-it note after post-it note, I can imagine after a while, your soul is probably really covered. So I appreciate the analogy and I appreciate the work you've done to now take those post-it notes and remove them. I do have a question for you. Yes, I'm taking questions right now, Silver. Okay, I'm so excited. And I know Dr. <laughs> Boke is chomping at the bit too, so I'm going to let her jump in also. But not before I mention, a couple weeks ago, Dr. Boken and I did an episode called If I Only Knew Then What I Know Now. And I wonder, with all of the growth that you have done and all of the growth mindset you have now, and that you have taken the post-it note of self-defeating mindset and thrown it out, Would you go back and do it again if you had the opportunity to restart? Do you feel as though all of the stages of your life and the journey that you've been on, it it is your soul, this acorn theory that you talk about in the book, is it all connected? And can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I wouldn't go back and change a thing because even the really, really, really hard and horrible things, and of course, I wish things were different, but everything that's happened to me or that I've done to myself or that I've experienced or so on has made me a hundred percent of what I am today. And I am now in a place where I'm really proud of who I am and feel really lit up by my work and things I'm passionate about and really grateful that I can turn up the light in others. So None of that would be possible if all of those things hadn't come together. And the acorn theory, to go back to James Hillman, is something that he writes about. Basically, an acorn knows that it's supposed to develop into this beautiful oak tree. It needs no instructions. It needs no help. It needs no other information. It's just going to organically and naturally happen. And the same is true for our soul, that we are pre-designed to develop into exactly who we're supposed to be. Now, we have self-will, and we will not always listen Mm -hmm. to the whispers from our soul. Um, Hello, do you know me? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Clearly, I'm not listening to the whispers. (laughs) So, and I talk about this at the end of the book in the last chapter, the 12 steps of the soul journey. Yeah. And a lot of us, and I did for many years, get stuck on 
step one, which is that we're just walking through our ordinary life and we're going to work or we're bringing up kids or we're going to dinner. We have coming home or watching Netflix. We're getting up. We're working out. We're doing the same thing. And everything's good enough. As you Mm -hmm. said, everything's fine. As we said, and you just walk around and you're kind of la 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 in your ordinary life. And you will hear whispers, but the, issue is, is that the whispers are really asking depth questions. Mm -hmm. Am I happy? Do I love him? Do I like this job? Do I want to live here? What am I doing with my life? And they're too big. So what do we do? We shush, 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 shush them away. And we turn away from them. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes step four, a guide will appear in the form of a book or meeting someone, or seeing something on television, and we go, oh, wait, hey, that's interesting. They did that. Maybe I could do that. And maybe you take step five, and you take a leap of faith, and you start pulling the thread on that a little bit, and you start becoming more and more curious, which is essential in soul work, always about curiosity. And you go on this journey, and then you begin the journey, and then my favorite step is step six, which I call lions and tigers and bears. Oh no. Because (laughs) you go on this, you've taken this leap of faith. Now you've gone on down this road and you're hitting brick walls and you're going over speed bumps and you're forced to take left turns when you're sure you should be going right. And that's normal. And then eventually we get to the threshold. We're like, all right, we made it through. We made it through the woods. We're at the threshold. And you think, I've got this. I've got it. Done all this work. Now here I am. It's my moment of truth. And you take the key and you're about to turn it, go into the door. And on the other side is going to be that meadow that we spoke of before. And you realize you don't have the key mm-hmm. and you're not quite ready. And that is when we have to go into what I describe as the cave and do a little bit more work. And don't you think, I don't mean to interrupt, but don't you think that there's some people who, and maybe majority where if they got to that place and that they were so ready or seemingly so, and then the key didn't work or they lost the key, someone like me, I'd be like, oh my God, I would have that defeatist attitude. Maybe that's what would put me down the rabbit hole to want to give up and fail. That's where sobriety comes in to say, do not give up, right? Sit in it. Exactly, exactly. I think for me, mapping out the phases of sobriety and knowing that you could be the hero of your own journey. I mean, Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. great culture and society has their own myth of the hero's journey. This is no different. But knowing that if you then go into the cave and you allow for this alchemy to happen, That is how you truly become enlightened. And then you're ready to give back. Rachel always says this. She's like, if I'm thinking this, everybody else is thinking this. So can you help? And I don't know if you can, if it's something that you can actually put words to it. But when you say this alchemy in the cave, what is that experience? What would our listeners expect to happen during that process of that alchemy? Great question. So I'll give you an example. I obviously talk about a lot of traumatic moments that I had had in the book. 
But for me, the one where I was already sober and was really, really heartbroken. And the way that that went down was very traumatic. When something like that happens, you really feel like a piece of you is missing. You'll hear people say, I feel like I was broken into a million pieces, Mm -hmm. or I feel like a piece of me is missing, or I'll never be the same again. This language that we use is really around image of how we feel. So for me, I was, I knew that even though I was on this road and I was done with grad school and here I was and I was getting my doctorate and everything on the outside again looked like I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, that there was still a really big piece that needed to be reshuffled. And so I created this image of what that heartbreak felt like. And then I worked on that image. And part of it is that I felt like I was in a million pieces spread out on the floor in my kitchen with my guts just totally open. And I was going to have to put all these pieces back together. And A, how was I going to do it? B, how long was it going to take? And C, would I even recognize myself on the other side? And that is where I took all of those pieces, brought them into my cave, laid them out and went in there when I was feeling like I wanted to work on that piece because we can't walk around all day Mm -hmm. in our day-to-day lives working on at this intensity. And so when you're ready to sort of heat up those beakers, right? When you're ready to go into and really look at that, I needed a place to be able to go in. I needed to do my day job. I needed to do what I was doing. And then I also needed a place to really, really look at all of these pieces of myself and put them back together in a way that I couldn't have even imagined. And that is why I wouldn't change anything because the way that I am now and the mosaic that I am now is a direct result of me doing that work. I just want to point out something that you've alluded to, that Rachel's alluded to, but I really want to be clear with this with our listeners. What I loved about the information that you provided about trauma, I think there is now becoming a a new wave of understanding trauma in the mental health world, both through functional and traditional and all different types of ways of conceptualizing it. But, you know, in our generation and prior, we looked at trauma or were told that trauma are these humongous what they call big T traumas, right? The 9-11s, the car crashes, the, you know, buildings falling and earthquakes and things like that. So a lot of my patients come to me and they're like, well, I had a great childhood. I had no trauma. My parents were great, got everything I wanted. I did anything I did and I was very happy. And then I start doing some work with them and I start to hear some of the stories of little, what we would call little T traumas, right? And and that was like the period slap or that is, you know, the bullying that you received in school or that your parents like forgot your ninth birthday or whatever the case may be. And my patients are like, but that's not trauma. Like, Think about all those bad things that happen. 
But like you said, all those post-it notes on the soul. And so I just want our listeners to really understand that there are traumas that happen that we don't identify as cataclysmic, whatever the word is that I can, you know, ginormous. Okay, let's go with that word. um, That Categorically? Any word you want to put out there. Catastrophic. Catastrophic. All of those Ginormous. All of them, We can sit here and just do a a, a, a synonym. (laughs) Exactly. But I do think it's such an important part of it because most people don't have those big T traumas. It's all an accumulation of those little T traumas that get into our lives that we don't even have the word to understand or the permission to know that that's what's at the bottom of all of this. And so I just wanted to highlight that for the listeners because I do think it's important for everybody to, to know that. Yeah. I mean, I refer to them as there's acute traumas, which are accidents, assaults, those types of things. Then there's chronic trauma, which Mm -hmm. are these little things that pile up Mm -hmm. on top of each other, like you were mentioning. And, you know, it's not that they're so little. They're not like little teeth. They're like impactful. And then there's complex trauma, which is like a combination of both. But the thing about trauma is it's subjective. Mm -hmm. And two people can be in the exact same experience, the exact same car accident, witness the same horrific results of it and walk away from it where one person is able to then re-regulate after a couple of days of resting and the other person is having those feelings as if that experience was still happening. And instead of something like someone saying, you know, I really don't want to go to that place for dinner tonight. Why do you always want to go there? Instead of hearing that and giving it a three in an annoying answer, someone that's traumatized where that's a trigger will give it a 10 or a 20 mm-hmm. because that brings them back to mm-hmm. the way that they felt during a traumatic experience. And so it's important not to minimize or push aside what may or may not be traumatic. Let Absolutely. somebody else help you decide what is and isn't because it is very subjective and there is no compare and contrast with others. Absolutely. Well said. I love that. And I also love to your point earlier when you said, actually, I had written this down on page 225, you talk about your belief system and you say that you're the hero of your own soul journey and that soul is your guide. And I love that because in today's world too, we hear a lot, there's no hero coming to save us. There's no guy on a white horse, no one showing up the door. I always joke around that like, they're definitely not showing up at my door because they would have to call from the gate and like, how will they know how to find me? So I I have to be the hero of my own journey. And your tips on that, Lisa, are so helpful. The other thing that I love that you say in the book too, is that when we're operating in unison with our soul, it allows us to live deeply and be fully present with our intuition, inner wisdom, and sense of home and safety. That harmony with the soul. I love that. What page is it on? Yes. I'm going to quiz you now on your own book, Dr. Hallerman. That's actually on page 59. I'm glad you asked. I know the author. (laughs) So you write, operating in unison with soul allows us to live deeply and be fully present with our intuition, inner wisdom, and sense of home and safety. Harmony with soul, we are in possession of our true power. 
And to me, the words harmony and soul and intuition and being fully present, these are things that, and safety, thank you, Dr. Boca. We, she and I, we talk about this so much on the podcast. And I think sometimes we talk about it so much because these are topics that a lot of us do struggle with. We want to be able to say how safe we are. We want to be able to say we're living deeply and we're present in every moment, but it does take work and practice. Mm -hmm. And I just think that the whole concept of sobriety, I want to point out, I don't think that we want to pigeonhole just addicts and people in recovery. This is for everyone. Everyone. And we want to open up the floodgates here to share sobriety and the value that we can all stand to gain from reading Dr. Halloran's book. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that was the intention. It's definitely not just for, I think that certainly people in recovery from some sort of addiction, right, are forced to listen to those whispers because they become hammers on our heads and we Mm -hmm. have no choice. But the soul work is for everybody. And I think that being able to look at those felt senses that you want to curate, whether that's peace or harmony or home, those moments when you feel the most yourself, those are when you are most connected to soul. And we can recreate those by doing soul work. I love that. Yeah. I love it. Before we wrap up, can I quote you one more time on another line that I loved? (laughs) You write, you write, actually, this is early on, but on page 19, you say, sobriety is not just about healing. It's about building resilience. So I ask you this kind of as we're wrapping up, you are so resilient. I look at you as someone who really has risen from the ashes, if you will, and you are Phoenix rising here. And I'm so proud of you. But what's next? Someone who has that mindset of now what-itis, that's what I like to call like my own self-diagnosis. Now what? Now what? Now what? Obviously, now what for me is that I know I need to grow down (laughs) more and continue to work on myself and figure out, you know, what those whispers really mean and so on and so forth. But Lisa, someone like yourself who seems so grounded in knowing exactly what your soul needs and wants and how to nourish it, what comes next? Are we ever done growing down? No. And knowing that we need to continue and doing it are two different things. So Mm -hmm. I wrote the book and I studied it and I practice it, but I can't just put it next to the bed and hope that through osmosis, it continues to infiltrate my body and brain because it doesn't. And for me right now, it has been growing down into what's happening, staying, not just staying present, but looking at the change and seeing how as I grow down, certain relationships don't fit. And when you create something or go through a life change, or in this case, it was like birth a book and have that out there for the world to read and see and receive feedback, whatever that might be, you really are forced to grow down. And so it's really, for me, looking at, okay, what are the subtle changes in my life? Where am I growing down and leaving other people because it doesn't suit where I am in my life right now? Or 
what did I think that I wanted to do right after I finished the book as to what was next and what might feel more organically next today and not making an impulsive decision and sort of getting into flow and listening to the whispers and not having to know what we don't know yet. And I think there's patience in growing down. One of the questions that I was thinking about when we first started was the idea of, you know, how many people switch from one addiction to the next addiction to the next addiction as they go through the addiction, you know, they just find a healthier one like working out or whatever. And as you just said, what was so amazing about this soul piece of it is when you connect to soul, it allows you that pause to really listen to not jumping into that next substituting addiction. And that's what's so beautiful about it, because I do think that it's such a a more authentic and more genuine connection. And it's so much truer to ourselves than that quick impulsive, like, okay, now what's the next, you know, as as Rachel says, the next what-itis or whatever disease she came up with. Now what-itis that she comes up with, right? So I, I think that's such, we talk about what pieces are missing in the addiction field to begin with. And, you know, we talk about soul and this is that piece. It's like, you don't have to go and substitute it for something else. You can pause, you can check in with yourself. You can say what's authentic to me at this moment. And it just feels so much more, I don't know what the right word is, but it just feels so much authentic and comprehensive and full and rich. Maybe that's it. it and so I'm not going to come up with the right word, but it's just a very good, yummy word that I can't come up with. And so I'm so glad that you said that. How about I, how about just truly fulfilling? Because to Lisa's point earlier, five years sober, she did the physical work of not picking up a drink anymore or not using drugs or, you know, whatever your vice was. I know for you, Lisa, champagne, cocaine, that was sort of your cocktail and knowing enough to say, but this isn't enough. And then finding something else, even though it was a long search for it to fully feel the mm-hmm. feeling of fulfillment. And, yeah. and maybe that's the difference with people who who grow down, do the sobriety work versus maybe the, the generalization of, of regular um, rehab, which I'm not knocking regular rehab. But, you know, I think that this maybe takes it up another notch or maybe I should say takes it down another notch, right? We're growing down. And for those people that are still reaching for something outside of themselves, that's normal. I mm-hmm. still do that. I feel very uncomfortable at times or something isn't going my way or I get insecure or whatever it is. And I'm quick to write, press buy on the internet, get that extra mm-hmm. thing at Amazon, you know, mm-hmm. buy those pair of shoes. And I laugh when I sometimes get a package and I'm like, who, what is, who, oh, yeah. Was that Trixie? I don't even Was it shorty pants? Was it I don't it even Gwen? remember what I ordered. Before I even open it, I'm, okay, we're returning this because this was impulsive mm-hmm. and this was me trying to fix. But instead of getting down on myself about it, it's noticing that that happens mm-hmm. and now trying to look at, well, what was going on for me then? Or right. what's going on for me right now? What is underneath that feeling? Because unless we get to the core issues, going to keep happening. The symptoms will multiply in different ways, mm-hmm. and we will try to fix them. The truth is, is that we're all human, and we don't need to be fixed. We just need to heal. Yeah. As awesome. you say in sobriety, it's a plan to heal your trauma, 
overcome addiction and reconnect with your soul. Those are your words, not mine. And you could not have said it better (laughs) or I could not have said it better because you're the one who said it. But Elisa, thank you so, so, so much for being with us today. I feel a little bit more grounded now. And I think that that's always a good thing. And I hope the listeners do also. For more information to our listeners on Dr. Hallerman, of course, we will link all of her appropriate contact information on the bottom of the podcast notes. But Sobriety, you can find, speaking of Amazon, on Amazon and in all of the bookstores. I am old-fashioned. I love going to a good old-fashioned brick-and-mortar store and smelling the pages and turning the pages and holding the book. And that's just, it's now part of, of my unpolished library. And for more information, of course, too, on RMA, Recovery Management Agency, where Dr. Hallerman and her staff and team of people help clients navigate the path to recovery, families, individuals, help them recover from addiction and trauma. But also she does such a beautiful job helping to awaken their soul, connecting them and their lives with unique purpose. And there should be a lot more of you in this world. Lise, thank you so much. Thank you. I also want to say, I think when I was in Boca recently, when I saw you, you did go to the bookstore, not me and you, but I did go to the bookstore and sign some of the books at the Boca bookstore. That's great. If you want to run over to Barnes and Noble, (laughs) you can go everyone head on over to Barnes and Noble. I am so lucky because I actually have my book that Elisa signed and it says silver, follow your heart and light up your soul. So Mm -hmm. I have it with me. This is my little unpolished Bible now that I do refer to. And I love it. I love you for spending your time with us. Thank you. I always say to you're a guest of the show, but now you're a friend of the show. And once a friend of the show, always a friend, please come back and visit us. I know that there's only amazing things ahead for you. I'm proud of you. I love everything about your sobriety and your soul-briety. And I hope our listeners found today's episode insightful, full of wisdom and hope for the future that we should all continue to grow down. Thank you so much, Lise. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you both so much. It was lovely to talk to both of you. I loved it. Thank you. Guys, it's been another week where we're on the corner of audacity and advice. Our wheels got spun upside down. I hope your wheels got spun upside down too. DB, thank you so much for sharing your morning and your wisdom with us as well. And we will see you next time on another episode of Unpolished Therapy. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage. 